0: Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. For this show, which is going to be the next to the last of 2022, my last show is going to be next week, which is, for those of you who are listening to the podcast, the weekend of December 17th, 2022. The, the, the weekend of December 16th through 18th, 2022. That will be my last show. So it's likely that I will be reviewing at least four uh, movies for you. And it's one of those instances where... There are so many movies for me to watch and so little time to do it, but that's kind of what goes on at the end of the year. I won't stop watching movies, but I will take a brief hiatus from my podcast and get ready for 2023. So for this show, I have four new movies to review for you. Two of them are brand new from this weekend. The other two are ones that came out last week. I just didn't have time to review them until now. They may be brand new to you. To me, they are old and having some sort of nostalgia. I'm kidding, of course. But yeah, whenever there's a movie that's out for a month, it's old to me considering that I watch new movies all the time. So with that said, the first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Spoiler Alert. And this is based on a memoir whose title is actually a spoiler alert. The title of the book... And I'm going against my words on film policy about no spoilers, but for some films I do make an exception, either to make a point or to emphasize that the ending of this film is not the point of this film. So the movie Spoiler Alert is based on a memoir that's written by, that's written by Michael Asiello, who was and probably still is a TV writer. And the memoir is called Spoiler Alert, The Hero Dies. And this is a movie that I saw as a sneak preview. I was lucky enough to see that. And on my way in, they actually gave out packets of tissues. And they said on them, not only the logo for the movie Spoiler Alert, but they also said, you're going to need these. And at first I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There are only a handful of movies that make me cry. And Spoiler Alert is actually one of them. They're... I didn't, you know, burst out crying in the middle of the film. But yeah, there were definitely tears flowing down my cheeks. And I could hear a lot of crying in my screening. And undoubtedly, if you go to to see this movie in theaters, if it doesn't make you cry, you will undoubtedly hear somebody else crying in the theater. Because this movie is very sad. And I am actually just choking up thinking about it. But anyway... Uh, The movie is based on that 2017 memoir that I mentioned. It's also based on a true story. And Michael Osiello in this movie is played by Jim Parsons. And when we first meet Michael Osiello, he's working as a writer for TV Guide. And I don't know if Michael Osiello is still doing that to this day, but he's been writing for TV Guide for quite some time. And eventually, he starts a romance with a man by the name of Kit Cowan, who's played in this movie by Ben Aldridge. And they are together, when we're first introduced to them, it's 2003. So they eventually meet and they begin a relationship that lasts about 11 years. They're living together, and at that time, gay couples were not legally able to be married, unlike now, thanks to that landmark... uh, rather the landmark Supreme Court decision back in 2015 to allow same-sex couples to be married. But they are together, they are living together, and they're also quarreling together. And right when it seemed like their relationship was at holding itself together at the seams, it turns out that Kit Cowan actually has a form of cancer and the cancer has a chance of being terminal it seems like there is some hope as the movie progresses but ultimately it turns out and this is a bit of a spoiler but one that's given away by the title of the memoir spoiler alert the hero dies kit eventually succumbs to that cancer but the point of the movie is not the end result the point is the journey to that end result and how sometimes the quarreling between two couples or rather two people who are a couple are not very important in the grand scheme of things. And the ending to this movie was definitely devastating. And this is one of those films where it's about a gay couple I'm not gay, but I felt my heartstrings tugging almost the same way they did when I watched other movies about gay couples, tragic films about gay couples like Brokeback Mountain and Moonlight, just to name a few. But Jim Parsons is excellent in this film, and Jim Parsons is one of those actors who probably, given the fact that he was on The Big Bang Theory for 11 years, and that is doing extremely well in syndication, he, as well as... Other actors on the show, like um, Maya Bialik, Kaylee Cuoco, and all the rest, probably don't have to do anything for the rest of their life. They can live on the, residu- the, uh, the residuals and the syndication royalties of the Big Bang Theory for the rest of their days, but it's all the more impressive that A, Jim Parsons is still seeking out acting roles on TV and in films which challenge him as an actor, but he's up to the challenge. And B, as I was watching this film, I was not reminded at all about Dr. Sheldon Cooper once. That is a testament to how well Jim Parsons does in this film. Ben Aldridge is also excellent as Kit Cowan and how he faces this inevitability of him succumbing to terminal cancer. And it's not just when he dies at the end, that's a sad part. There are also some other parts where he's visiting with doctors who have to give him the really bad news and the way he reacts to it is very poignant and also had those tear ducts flowing when I was watching the film. Also excellent in this film are the people who play Kit Cowan's parents. Especially his mother, Marilyn Cowan, who in this movie is played by Sally Field, in probably one of her best roles ever. And that's saying a lot, considering that she's been nominated for three Oscars, and she's won two of them for Norma Jean and Places in the Heart. She was also nominated for Best Supporting Actress for Lincoln. She didn't win, but she was up against Anne Hathaway in Les Mez. I don't know if she is going to win Best Supporting Actress for this film. But she's definitely a shoe-in, or she has a very good chance of being nominated. But rest assured, she also has some very tough competition. Also excellent in this film is Kit Cowan's dad, Bob, who's played by Bill Irwin, who we haven't seen for a while, but he's been acting in films and TV shows over the last 50 years. But even though he has a lot to live up to next to Sally Field, he also does well with his role. So... Spoiler alert, I broke my rule about there being spoilers mentioned in this film, or rather in this review of the film, but it is a movie that will probably make you cry, and if it doesn't make you cry, you will definitely feel that lump in your throat if the tear ducts don't open for you, but spoiler alert is an amazing film, which is, by the way, also directed by Michael Showalter. And Michael Showalter has had a very impressive career as a director so far. The last movie he directed before this was The Eyes of Tammy Faye, which won Jessica Chastain her first Academy Award. Michael Showalter has also directed The Big Sick, which certainly had its share of dramatic moments, but was not nearly as sad as Spoiler Alert. But Spoiler Alert, gets my rating, as you might imagine, of a knockout. It is a very sad film, but there are also some very happy moments in it as well. But the point is not how the movie ends. The point is the journey to get to that point. I should also mention that there this movie takes place over the course of about 15 years, and there are moments in this film that take place around Christmas. And there are some films that take place around Christmas like Funny Pages and... And Ben is back, which I have warned people who are listening to the show do not watch this movie around Christmas time. However, even though spoiler alert is inevitably sad, I actually would recommend watching this film around Christmas time. It's definitely not as lighthearted as Christmas Vacation or The Nightmare Before Christmas, but I think very much like It's a Wonderful Life, it's a movie that takes place around Christmas time and gives you a lot of perspective about what it means to live and also what it means to enjoy yourself in this life. So I recommend Spoiler Alert for any time of year. And even though it is very sad, I also recommend it around Christmas. And even though this movie will make you cry, you won't be disappointed by it. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. And the reason I'm calling this Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is not only because it's the official title of this film, but also not to be confused with another Pinocchio film, actually two other Pinocchio films that opened in 2022. The first one was a movie that's called Pinocchio, A True Story, which I swear to God, this is... Absolutely true. The voice of Pinocchio in *Pinocchio* true story is Polly Shore, and I'm not exactly sure if the movie was intended to be bad because it does have some very clunky animation. Plus, you have Polly Shore as the voice of Pinocchio, and it actually is very funny to hear Polly Shore try to do the voice of Pinocchio. Uh, so I, I guess it's it's so bad it's good in a sense. The other movie that came out, the other Pinocchio film that came out this year, was the live-action animated hybrid that was directed by Robert Zemeckis. And it's a film that I liked, I didn't love, but some other people hated it. But I will concede that Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is a much better film than Robert Zemeckis' Pinocchio, even though it takes its artistic liberties with the original Adventures of Pinocchio book written by Carlo Collodi in 1883. It deviates very much uh, from it. It's actually based on a 2002 edition of the book by Collodi, which was designed by Gus Grimley. So Guillermo del Toro takes some of Gus Grimley's design as well as some of his own very creepy designs and incorporates it into this movie that is not only not only looks better than the Disney live action remake, not to mention the Pauly Shore film, but it also, even though it deviates considerably from the Collodi book, it also has a surprising amount of heart, especially coming from the guy who directed the Hellboy films and Pan's Labyrinth which were fables in and of themselves and had a childlike element to them, but also had a very, very dark element to them. But I didn't say that was a bad thing at all. But the film actually reimagines the story of Pinocchio, not in 1883 when it's supposed to take place, but in 1930s fascist Italy, i.e. when Benito Mussolini was in power, but before Hitler became the leader that he was, but it is, it's imagined as, and I'm quoting here, a story of love and disobedience as Pinocchio struggles to live up to his father's expectations, learning the true meaning of life. And there are some familiar voices that are in this film. For instance, there is a cricket by the name of Sebastian, who's voiced by Ewan McGregor. And one of the biggest deviations, not only from the Walt Disney version, but also from the Carlo Collodi book, is that the cricket in this movie actually lives all the way through it, because... In the original Pinocchio book, and this has been depicted in some films that have been truer to Carlo Collati books than other films, especially the Walt Disney movie, the cricket gets killed in the very beginning. But I guess Guillermo del Toro could have taken this um, very tragic event and run with it, but Ewan McGregor actually does really well here as the cricket and does not, unlike Joseph Gordon Levitt in the live action version do an imitation of Jiminy Cricket. I think that Ewan McGregor brings in original persona to this cricket as well. And the movie also takes some liberties with the character of Geppetto, who in this movie is voiced by David Bradley, because it's revealed in this in this film, unlike in any other incantation of Pinocchio that I know, that Geppetto actually had a son who who died at the age of 10. That's not a spoiler, that happens in the very beginning. So Geppetto, in Drunken Grief, takes uh, Pinocchio and carves him out. And Pinocchio is, throughout the film, a very well-meaning boy who's voiced by Gregory Mann. Some of the other voices in the film include Ron Perlman, who Guillermo del Toro worked with in the Hellboy films, John Turturro, Kate Blanchett, Tim Blake Nelson, Christoph Waltz, Tilda Swinton, and Finn Wolfhard, who plays a friend of Pinocchio's by the name of Candlewick. And there are also some other deviations here. Like, for example, there is no land like Pleasure Island or the land of toys, the land of fun, whatever you want to call this um, certain land that threatens to turn Pinocchio into a donkey, but there are some, there actually is a, a good twist on it considering that it takes place in 1930s Italy, and also it's maybe not as as terrifying as the land of toys or the land of fun, but it is terrifying in the grand scope of this movie, and it also gives a dimension to Pinocchio's quest to become a real boy. Does he become a real boy in the end? I'm not going to say, but I will say that this film was actually a long-term project of Benicio del Toro's. He began working on it in 2008. It was originally scheduled to be released in 2013 or 2014, but it entered into development hell. In addition to that, this version of Pinocchio is all stop motion animation. And this is the kind of animation where, according to a story I saw on CBS news, it took an entire eight hour day for an animation team to make two and a half seconds of this film. And this film's total running time is one hour, 57 minutes. And it is very impressive. Not only that they were able to put together this nearly two hour film with the number of animators and the number, the amount of time that these animators have, but for it to look nearly perfect in its execution. In fact, as I was watching the film, I absolutely forgot that this was stop motion animation. So this version of Pinocchio is not only undoubtedly the best movie version of Pinocchio for this year, it's also one of the best animated films of the year. And that's saying a lot, considering that there have been some excellent animated films that have come out this year. For example, there's Turning Red, The Bad Guys, Apollo 10 and a Half, Wendell and Wild, My Father's Dragon. So the Academy has its work to do when it comes to choosing five animated features to be in those um, nomination uh, to get nods for the best animated feature category, but I was incredibly pr- impressed by Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. It definitely elevated itself amongst the other versions of Pinocchio this year, not only in its storytelling, but also in its execution and its refreshing deviation, actually, from Carlo Collodi's original book, which is why Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio gets my rating of a knockout. And this is very rare for me to say, but Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is a film that I will likely see again. I also should note that it is rated PG in the sense that there may be some images, especially of this sphinx-like creature to whom Pinocchio has as a guide as well as a confidant, as, as well as someone who gives him stern warnings about life, that, those images as well as others may scare children. But I think that children five and over will appreciate this film, and probably the older you are... And the more you know about filmmaking, the more you will probably appreciate this version of Pinocchio. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Menu. This is a film that had its world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival on September 10th, 2022, and was released in the United States in theaters nationwide on November 18th, 2022, shortly before Thanksgiving, which was a bit of a risk because I don't know if you'd want to watch a black comedy horror film like The Menu right before cooking a Thanksgiving dinner or eating a Thanksgiving dinner, because I love good food as much as the next person. I certainly have my simple low standard foods, but I also really like a well-cooked gourmet meal as much as the next person as well. However, I would never want to be seated in this this dining room, which has a chef by the name of Chef Slowick, Who's played by Ray Fines? He knows his food, but he also knows how to mess with his customers. And this movie is about a young couple who travels to a remote island to eat at this exclusive restaurant where Ray Fines' character has prepared a lavish menu with some shocking surprises. So, the surprise here in this film, I'm not going to give away because I have that no spoiler alert, but the. The surprises here not only shock the people who are being served this gourmet food, it also shocked the audience, especially me. And I should also note that while this film is directed by Mark Mylod, some of the producers of the film include Adam McKay and Will Ferrell. And as I was watching this film, I never would have thought that Will Ferrell would have been attached to this film because, yeah, it does have some comedic elements, but it, it gets... Really into the abyss of the human mind, as well as facing some of the abject fears and nightmarish realities of some of the people in this movie. And the main protagonist is a woman by the name of Margot, who's played by Anya Taylor Joy. And Margot is not exactly what she seems, she basically lies to get her way into this exclusive dinner alongside her boyfriend, Tyler, who's played by Nicholas Holt. And Tyler is a foodie, and he knows Chef Slowick very well, but he also really knows his food. And joining them in this exclusive dinner are some veteran patrons named Richard and Anne, who are played by Reed Burney and Judith Light, who have had meals with Chef Slowick before because they are of sound financial means, but they haven't quite had a meal like this one. Also joining them is a food critic by the name of Lillian, played by Janet McTeer, as well as the man who got her this exclusive dinner, named Ted, who's played by Paul Uh, Adelstein. And you're also introduced to a person who's known as Movie Star in the credits. The point is that he is a well-known actor, probably amongst the likes of John Leguizamo himself, and John Leguizamo stars as said Movie Star. He also brings along with him a trophy girlfriend named Felicity, who's played by Amy Carrero, who also has some skeletons in her closet as well. Also joining them are three Silicon Valley... Frat Boys, who are played by Rob Yang, Arturo Castro, and Mark Saint Cyr. And the interesting thing about these three are they are um they're well known for getting their way and also having a good time, but they instantly regret sitting into this dining hall. Not because of the food, but but because of the mind games that Ray Fines plays on them. And Even though there are some moments in this this movie that are funny, because it is a black horror comedy, you kind of laugh at it while feeling bad about laughing at the parts. But I think this is probably the intention. And this is a, a sort of comedy genre that Adam McKay has dabbled with in some of his recent films. But I do think that this movie is a lot better as a... Black comedy, as well as a satire, than Adam McKay's previous directorial effort, *Don't Look Up*, which is one of those films that did get some critical praise. But I still think about it, and I, I wonder what people saw in that movie that I didn't. But rest assured, *The Menu* is a movie that will make you feel uneasy kind of like Don't Look Up did, but for different reasons. And one of the biggest reasons is this is a very well-executed film. As I said before, the director of this film is Mark Mylod, and some of his previous directorial efforts I'm looking up right now, he's directed certainly a number of episodes of some very well-known TV series like Shameless and Game of Thrones. In terms of his... Efforts as a film director. He's only directed one other film before this, and that was a film that came out in 2011 that was called What's Your Number. And that was a romantic comedy I didn't see that starred Anna Ferris and Chris Evans. And while I didn't see that film, this movie is certainly a, a film that takes a lot of narrative risks, and all of them really pay off. In fact, the menu I would probably compare best to M. Night Shyamalan. At his best. And I'm not talking about some of his recent efforts that were also black comedies, but also a bit cheesy in their execution, like the film Old, for example. The Menu is a, is a movie that is semi like a satisfying meal, but at the same time, you're not exactly sure what whether you should enjoy the meal or look over your shoulder. But the menu, as I said, is very well executed. And there's so much more I could say about it, but not enough time to say it. But I will say that it gets my rating of a knockout. I liked Anya Taylor-Joy in this film, as I usually do with a lot of her films. I love the acting of just about every customer in this film. But Ray Fiennes is somebody who really, really shines in this film. And I don't think I've been more scared of a performance by Ray Fiennes than since Schindler's List, but that says a lot about not only Ray Fine's acting ability, but also his ability to take risks in his acting choices and his acting performances, unlike his co-star in Schindler's List, Liam Neeson, but good for Ray Fine's and very good for this film, The Menu, as well. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Disenchanted. This is a film that is actually a sequel to the movie Enchanted that came out in 2007. The director Adam Shankman was did not actually direct the original Enchanted film, but he's had a lot of experience directing. Uh, musicals, some of which are excellent. For example, he directed the 2007 version of Hairspray and he also directed some other uh, music videos like, for example, Miley Cyrus's When I Look at You and Mary J. Blige's My Life. And his directorial efforts have been somewhat hit and miss when it's come to movies but the last film he directed before disenchanted was what men want which starred taraji p henson which was somewhat of a loose remake of what women want which came out 19 years earlier and starred mel gibson and to adam shankman's credit what men want was in my opinion a lot better of a film than what women want for several reasons But Disenchanted, even though Adam Shankman didn't direct the original Enchanted, I think speaks a lot to the spirit of the original. But it is a little bit of a mess in terms of its story and its execution. But the movie, even though it came out literally 15 years after the original Enchanted, it takes place probably 10 years after. And the reason I say that is because you're reintroduced to the princess, the former princess Giselle, who's reprised in this movie by Amy Adams, and she is married to the divorce attorney, Robert, who's, who's reprised in this film by Patrick Dempsey. And together they have a child, but, they, but Giselle also has a stepdaughter whose name is uh, Morgan, and she's played by Gabriella. Baldacino and Gabriella Baldacino is not exactly a household name, but in terms of her acting credits, she, she has, uh, some small ones, but she is actually not the actress who played Morgan in the original film. And in that film, which came out, you know, 15 years ago, Morgan was six years old. And in, in this film, she's probably around 16. And even though the description says that the movie takes place 15 years after the original, there's no way that that would happen because Morgan would have to be 21 years old. But in any regard, they move from New York City to a New York City suburb where they live in this house that looks a bit castle-like but also needs a lot of work. And they meet some neighbors of theirs, including the neighborhood Karen, who's a real estate agent named Malvina, who's played by Maya Rudolph. And she has two other Karen-like friends named Rosaline, who's played by Yvette Nicole Brown, and Ruby, who's played by Jama Mays. And the three of them together are are really funny. And I've said before that I've seen Maya Rudolph play, if not the villain, the antagonist, in some other films uh, previously. And my complaint about Maya Rudolph is that She's too likable, I, th- I thought, in other movies to play an antagonist. But here, I thought she played the perfect antagonist because she's meant to be over the top. Especially when Giselle, after being frustrated with living in the real non-fantasy world, makes a wish o- upon this magic wand that her life could be a fairy tale. But it goes into this theme of be careful what you wish for because Giselle finds that her life in this New York suburb is more fantastic, but she also finds that her personality changes from the former princess she used to be to being an evil stepmother to Morgan. And she is a stepmother to Morgan, but she doesn't have to be an evil stepmother. Until she makes this wish. And there's a bit of a contrivance, as t- and also something that's very not particularly well explained about why or how Giselle turns into an evil stepmother. But Amy Adams is very good at both playing the sugary, sweet, picture perfect Giselle, who the more the movie went on, the, the more my eyes rolled at her consistent perkiness. As I'm sure they did for other characters as well. But when she turned into an evil stepmom, she also was very convincing in that role. And some of the best scenes in this movie are when the evil queen, Malvina, Maya Rudolph again, faces off against Giselle or Amy Adams's evil stepmother. And. That's when the movie definitely had its fun, but there are also some other supporting actors who kind of fell by the wayside who didn't really need to. And I also felt like Edina Menzel actually uh, makes an appearance, well, actually plays a very strong supporting role in this film as um, Nancy, who was also in the original Enchanted. And in the original Enchanted, Edina Menzel didn't do any singing. In this film, she does a lot of singing, largely because she made a boatload of money for Disney by solidifying Let It Go from Frozen as one of the top 10 most played Disney songs ever, probably played in more... Houses than Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, for example, and I'm I'm being facetious, of course. She does a lot of singing in this film, and I think actually her songs weren't entirely necessary, and I felt like her singing was a bit more of a contractual obligation. So, Disenchanted is a film that I I forgot to mention this. It is playing right now on Disney Plus. It premiered on Disney Plus on November eighteenth. 2022, shortly before Thanksgiving. I didn't get a chance to see it before now. It's not as good as the original, but it's still a valiant effort. And I, to me, it's disenchanted is a checkout. I think that Amy Adams, Maya Rudolph, Gabriella Baldacino and Yvette Nicole Brown and several other people definitely have their fun with this film, but I also thought there were Too many supporting characters, too many unexplained occurrences, and also some other parts that felt more like studio interference and contractual obligation than it did actually telling a solid story. I think a solid story was there, and during the movie's best moments, you could feel the story start to uh, flourish, but it was also bogged down by a lot of the things that I just mentioned. But I'm still glad I saw Disenchanted. It just wasn't as good as the original Enchanted. And m- maybe some of that had to do with studio interference, maybe some more of that had to do with the fact that it was made 15 years after the original, but I I think it, it could have been more, but it was okay for what it was. <laughs> Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters and or on streaming for the week of December 11th through December 16th, 2022. And there are some big films to come out. There's one film that's actually coming out in theaters or subject to being released in theaters on Sunday, December 11th, which is kind of an odd time for a movie to be released in theaters, but this could also mean that it may not be released in a theater near you, but I'm going to tell you what it is anyway. The movie is called Priest, The Whip and the Rise of Evil. Believe it or not, this is a film that has nothing to do with The Conjuring, even though it kind of sounds like it does in its premise. And I'm not given a plot for this movie as well. What I can tell you is that this is actually an English version of a film that I'm not also I'm also not being told is has been released in uh, or in what country this was originally filmed or released. The star of the movie is Michael Mas- Masurkovich, and I'm not being told what uh, nationality he is either. So I'm sorry to tell you this, guys, but I have nothing to tell you about The Priest, uh, excuse me, Priest, The Whip, and The Rise of Evil. It has an awesome name, and the stills from this movie that I see look very dark and very intriguing, but it's a film I'm probably not going to see, and the reason I'm not going to see it is I highly doubt it's going to be released in the theater near me. It may be released on streaming, but I don't know for sure. And I also can't tell you what streaming service it'll be released in, for example, Netflix, Hulu, Apple TV, all the rest. I just don't know. But I can tell you a lot more about the movies that are subject to being released in theaters on December 16th. And there's one film that's a huge one. The film is Avatar, The Way of Water. And if I thought the gap between Enchanted and Disenchanted was wide, the gap between the original Avatar and Avatar, The Way of Water is actually less so. But it feels like the Original Avatar came out longer ago than 13 years. And it was a film that looked amazing and was one of the films that was absolutely 100% worth seeing in 3D. And I don't doubt that Avatar The Way of Water will be the same way. So the movie has Sam Worthington replay, um, reprising his role as Jake Sully who lives with his newfound family formed on the planet of Pandora. So now, Jake Sully went from being a paraplegic man about, I don't know, five and a half feet tall, to being this non-paraplegic alien who's now 11 feet tall. And he seems to be enjoying himself. But once a familiar threat returns to finish what was previously started, Jake must work with Neytiri, Who's reprised in this role, uh, who's reprised in this movie by Zoe Saldana and the Army of the Navi Race to protect their planet. So there are a lot of people who are coming back here from the original, as well as some other people who are new to this film. So reprising their roles from the original 2009 film include Sam Worthington, Zoe Saldana, Sigourney Weaver, Stephen Lang, Joel David Moore. And others, I'm sure, those are just the ones that I'm familiar with. And lo and behold, James Cameron is coming back or has come back to direct this film and also write the screenplay. And we haven't heard from James Cameron in quite some time, but he is definitely somebody who is rolling in the residuals that he has made from his other films, especially the Terminator films and Titanic. And Titanic is probably still making him a lot of money. But regardless, believe it or not, Avatar The Way of Water is not actually going to be the last Avatar film. And I'm not just saying that, speculating it. There's also an Avatar 3 that is subject to being released in theaters in 2024, Avatar 4 in 2026, and Avatar 5 in 2028. And... James Cameron has not directed a feature film since Avatar, which means that he has spent a lot of time on this film. This film is probably in development hell. I don't know how it's going to be as a movie. My chief complaint about the original Avatar was it had a very familiar theme that we'd seen in other movies like, for example, Dances with Wolves, Ferngully: Gully, The Last Rainforest, and other films to that nature. It had a pro-environmental theory, and it was, it was a little too on the nose about the comparisons between the Navi aliens and the Native Americans. But I will see Avatar The Way of Water, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Another film that is subject to being released in theaters on December 16th, 2022, is a movie that's called The Almond and the Seahorse, This is a film that actually stars Rebel Wilson, and the premise of the film asks you what happens when you're ambushed by time. I don't really know what that means, but in this movie, an archaeologist and an architect fight to reimagine a future after traumatic brain injury leaves them adrift from the people they love. So this is probably Rebel Wilson's first dramatic film, so it would be interesting it'd be interesting to see how well she does in this movie. Also starring in this film is indie film, darling Charlotte Gainsbourg, who has been in some very jarring films. For example, I saw her in the movie Antichrist and lived to tell about it. Antichrist is a movie that will shake you to your core. The almond and the seahorse seems like a movie that is lighter in tone than Antichrist. I would at least hope so, but I don't exactly know how this movie is going, going to be in terms of its drama. I also don't know how well it's going to be as a film, but it's a film that I will seek out, and if I see it, I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on December 16th is a movie that is called Little Nicholas, and this is a French film. The French name of this movie is Le Petit Nicolas, and it follows the adventures of a mischievous boy, bo- excuse me, a mischievous boy, and his schoolmates, teacher, and parents in Paris in the 1960s. And I don't see a list of any actors who are providing the English-speaking voices for these characters, so... Le Petit Nicolas, or Little Nicholas, might be one of those films that's released in an art house theater near you, but I doubt it's going to be released at your local multiplex. But in a year of fantastic animated movies, and some that have fallen short, like Lightyear and a few others, like one that I saw a couple of weeks ago, um, Strange World, (laughs) briefly forgot the name of it, it's a film that... I will try to see, but I'm not going to guarantee that I will see it. But if I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. And there is another film that is also animated and also from a foreign country, presumably Spain. It is actually a sequel, and the movie is Hand-Drawn Animation. And the name of the movie is Ernest and Celestine, A Trip to Gibberishia. And Ernest and Celestine return to Ernest's country to have his broken violin repaired. They discover that music is banned throughout the country. They will attempt to right this injustice in order to bring joy back to Bear Country. And I love the animation for this uh, film already. It looks like it's largely hand-drawn animation with some CGI mixed in, probably to save time. And truth be told, I did not actually see the original Ernest and Celestine when it was out in theaters, or for that matter, out on DVD or streaming. It's a movie that passed me by. I do remember that there were some American voice actors that were added to the roster of the American version of this film. And I also remember that it was nominated for an Oscar in 2013 for Best Animated Feature. It didn't win, but it was nominated. And it's likely that this new Ernest and Celestine is not a shoe-in for in a nomination for Best Animated Feature, but it has a very good chance, especially considering the movie that's following. I would love to know what Gibberishia is like as a town, but I really want to see the original Ernest and Celestine first, and it will make me immediately giddy and also nostalgic for my childhood as well. But Ernest and Celestine, A Trip to Gibberishia, is subject to being released in theaters on December 16th, 2022. And if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show, but I'm not guaranteeing anything. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've given you a spoken word preview of all the movies that are subject to being released in theaters, at least in North America, for the weekend of December 16th, 2022, it's now time for me to get into my next segment of of what's coming up next, which is where I review movies that are subject to being released on streaming for the week of December 11th, through December 16th, 2022. And there are a lot of new films that are coming out on a variety of streaming platforms and I can't keep up with them. I highly doubt you can. So let me just give you uh, a spoken word preview of the movies that are coming out on Netflix first and other streaming options if I have time. A movie that is subject to being released on Netflix on December 15th, which is a Thursday, is a film that's called The Big Four. This is a foreign film that tells the story of an elite assassin that is targeted by murderous gangsters after sparing a girl's life during a massacre. This is a film that definitely looks high, high intensity. I don't know from what country it hails because it's not telling me that. And it's also not telling me where the director is from or any of the lead actors, but it's a film that I may see. If you're interested, some of the actors in the film include Arya Tasia, Putri Marino, Lutatia, Ari Kreiting, and others. I'm sure I pronounced some of those names wrong, but The Big Four is a movie that will premiere on Netflix on December 15th. If I see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released on Netflix on December 15th is a movie that's called Violet Evergarden Recollections. This is a movie that sounds like an anime, and I don't exactly know what to tell you about the film. It is actually an anime. I am. uh, I stand corrected. It's a short film, though. It was only... Well, actually, the Violet Evergarden series came out in 2018. This um, this film is undoubtedly based on this series, and for lack of time, I can't exactly tell you what the film is about. So I will move on to the movies that are subject to being released on Netflix on Friday, December 16th. One of the movies that is subject to being released on the platform is a movie that's called Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths. This is a film that is an acclaim, is about an acclaimed journalist-turned-documentarian who goes on an um, one-eric, introspective journey to reconcile with the past, the present, and his Mexican identity. So this is a Mexican film that is directed by Academy Award-winning director Alejandro Iñárritu. And while he could have employed an A-list cast for this film... He employs a cast that is otherwise uh, native to Mexico and people I don't know, including Daniel Jimenez Cacho, Griselda Siciliano, uh, Semina Madrid, and Ikir Sanchez Solano, amongst other actors. But because Iñárritu directed this film and he is a very visionary director, This is a film I might see, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released on Netflix on Friday, December 15th is a film that is called Private Lesson. And this is a film that is American. And it's about a woman by the name of Azra, who, posing as a private tutor, secretly coaches students on achieving their goals in life and love, but not without a few bumps in the road. And correction, this is actually not a an American film. It is a foreign... Ah, I, I hate when I say this is a foreign film, but I can't tell you what country. But it's directed by Kivank Barionu, and I presume it is an Eastern European film. It's a film that I may see, but I can't guarantee it. And I'll let you know what I think on next week's show there's another film that is a documentary that is premiering on Netflix and this is a film that's called the volcano rescue from Wakari and the film's title probably speaks for itself and this is a film that I will probably see but I can't guarantee it but regardless I'll let you know what I think on next week's show so that does it for the films that are on Netflix. And I don't really have very much time to give you a preview of other films that are subject to being released on other streaming platforms. I will say very briefly there's a film that stars Will Smith that premiered on Apple TV Plus uh, on Friday, December 9th. And this is a film, I don't know if it's going to be a comeback for Will Smith. He's in a career rut right now because of a very poor choice that he made during the Oscars, so that might hurt his chance of people seeing this film and taking him seriously as a dramatic actor again, but anything goes. I'll try to see that film, but it's unlikely I'll see it for next week's show. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures and I am your host and movie critic Dan Burke reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole until I watch a whole bunch of Brand new movies. This is Dan Burke saying, I'll see you at the movies.